there's a man in northern Wisconsin that if I was ever asked, uh, who would you consider to be um, a man of God, someone that you know is just loves God, I would consider that man to be him. And what what characterizes him as just as what I would call a man of God is his absolute trust in God. A building burns down. He turns and says, Lord, what are you doing? What can I expect you? What great work can I expect you to do here? Something horrible happens where a student his uh, has his wife has cancer. He says, Well, what do we know about God? And he goes through that he's good, that he's loving, and there's just this absolute trust in God. And trusting a God we cannot see, who we, if we're honest, many times feel far off from us, distant at times. Probably the most humbling and convicting times in my own walk with God is when the Spirit opens my eyes to my actions, to points in the way I've been thinking, and exposes my attitudes as plainly clear that I have not been trusting God. The moment, as I assume that you may have been in sometimes, when you sink to the ground of embarrassment because you realize that you've been operating and living as if God doesn't exist, as if God doesn't care about what you're going through, as if God, he cares, but he's not able to do anything, or he's not willing to do anything, or he's not faithful, as if God does not care about the hardship that you and your family have been going through, or as if God does not care about the financial situation that you're in. And as someone who wants to please God, as I know that you do as well, whenever I'm in that situation where the Spirit has just opened my eyes to my doubt, Hebrews 11.6 just echoes in my ears, which reads, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So in our passage this morning that, that Bob read for us, there's a Roman soldier, a Gentile, a non-Jew, and he causes Jesus to be to marvel at him. To marvel. Man, Jesus marveled at this man, the living God, the creator of this man, the Messiah King, the Son of God, marvels at one of his creatures. Marvels. Uh, and the gospel accounts record only twice, only two times Jesus had this, this response. Here with the centurion, and the other one's in Mark 6 6, 6 where Jesus marvels at Nazareth's unbelief. But here with the centurion, the thing that he marvels at is his faith. It's the faith of the centurion that he marvels at. So this morning, we're going to look at marvelous faith a faith that the Lord of all marvels at. So if you have not opened your Bibles yet, I, I encourage you to open to Luke chapter 7. Actually, we'll jump around a little bit here. The last few months, as Bob said, we've been going through Luke. We've been working through Luke's inspired account of the gospel. And what we've seen very clear as a, as a, a thread running through it all is the proclamation of the coming Messiah, the King, who is coming. Right? We saw, if, you, if you're just flipping through, look at chapter 1. It's directed towards Theophilus. But then we see an angel comes to Zechariah, says, hey, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be very significant in running before this Messiah king. Then we see Mary. An angel tells her that you're going to give birth to this Lord of all, the Messiah king, the son of God. 
Then we see these angels come to the shepherds in the field and they, they were rejoicing over the news of the birth of this Messiah King. And then we jump a little further a few years and we see the young boy Jesus in the temple of God. Just amazing, the professional teachers with the questions that he's saying. Then we jump even further and John the Baptist comes back on the scene and he is proclaiming some very, very hard things to the Jewish leaders at that time. Talk about judgment to come. And John the Baptist, he talks about one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire and whose judgment is coming. Then we see the Holy Spirit literally descend upon Jesus Christ at his baptism. Luke then proceeds into a genealogy proving that the throne is Jesus. Jesus deserves that throne. He is in line. Then we jump a little more, and we see the Messiah King in the wilderness overcoming the temptations of Satan. And this is huge. King David didn't do it. Moses didn't do it. Elijah didn't do it. Abraham didn't do it. Zechariah didn't do it. None of them did it. But then Jesus comes out victorious out of the wilderness. Israel did not do it, but Jesus did, and he comes out. Then we see him at the, the, um, the synagogue of Nazareth, pretty much kicking off his public ministry. And he's saying, this, this passage in, in Isaiah, it's fulfilled in your hearing. I am here. Do you the Lord's favor? Yup, because I am here, Jesus says. I am the one. And the people marvel at him. Then we see opposition start to kick up that they want to kill him. But then Jesus preaches the good news of the kingdom of God. He says, I need to go town to town. He's healing many people. He's casting out many demons. And he begins to say that he's bringing the new that's been told of old. He's here. Don't put the new wine, the new wine, the old wineskins. The new is here that was told of old. It is here, and I'm bringing it. And then we just saw the Messiah King choose his leaders, the apostles, and he begins preaching on what it means to follow him, how his following is characterized by love. And it's a call of the importance of who you're following and the absolute need to obey. And then we come to our passage today, right at the end of the sermon. It's about marvelous faith. We've seen so much about this Messiah King, this Lord, so much Luke has been going through, and he will continue to go through. Then it just ends here. Jesus calls us, hey, you've come, you've heard, now obey. And here comes a centurion. On the scene, literally right at the end, a man who comes, who hears, and obeys. This example of marvelous faith by the centurion. And so this morning, there's one question that that faces you today. One that faces me today. Will you trust him? Will you trust this Jesus, this Messiah King that Luke has been pointing to through all these different events? Will you trust him with your life? Will you trust him with your career, with your college decisions? Will you trust him with your kids? Will you trust him with your money? Will you trust him with whatever is giving you worry and anxiety? Will you trust him? So a picture of marvelous faith for the centurion. A faith that the Lord Jesus Christ marveled at. So Luke chapter 7. Number one, marvelous faith is marked by love. Marvelous faith is marked by love. And this should be no surprise. I mean, Jesus, uh, Jesus literally just got done preaching about love. 
a lot about love in his last, in his past sermon. And then, verse 1, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Now the town of Capernaum might sound familiar to you. We, Jesus, he goes there a lot. He spends a lot of time in Capernaum. You may remember back in Luke chapter 4, which seems like just yesterday, to you it might feel like a few months ago, where in Luke chapter 4, Jesus was in Capernaum, and there it's recorded that Jesus preaches, and the people there are amazed at the authority of his word. And this authority is then expressed as he casts a demon out of a man. And it might be there that the centurion learned of Jesus. That this event, that he's preaching with authority, they cast out demons. That might be where the centurion learns about this Jesus. And you see this clear connection back in Luke 4, Capernaum, the authority that Jesus teaches with. And then what does the centurion bring up in this passage? The authority of Jesus. And so we see this connection. But you got this centurion, right? An officer of the Roman army, uh, centurion, uh, sentry. He's a commander over about 100 men. And remember that Luke is writing specifically to Theophilus, a Gentile. And now you have this, this connection with the Gentiles, the centurion, this non-Jew. And the centurion has a servant who's sick, even to the point of death. And Luke describes that the centurion highly valued the servant. The centurion had a, a, a love for the servant. And we'll see this, this faith that results in love marked by the centurion as we go through. Verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And and remember, see this connection, I just said it. Jesus just got done preaching, hey, you've come, you've heard, not enough, now you must obey. Now we see the centurion who hears of Jesus comes by proxy by sending elders, and we see later that it's not some form of condescension, whatever the word I'm trying to say. Yup. But it's, rather, it's out of, he feels unworthy, so he sends these, these elders. So he, he hears, he comes by proxy, and then we see he obeys by these actions he takes. Literally, what Jesus just preached, we see an example of this marvelous faith of the centurion. So he sends these elders, which is very peculiar, because they're Jewish. The Jews hate the Romans. The Romans literally came into the land and practically conquered the nation and pretty much enslaved them in some different aspects. They hate them. But these Jewish elders, for some reason, like this centurion. So we start getting this, this or the picture starts getting rolled out a little bit more and drawn out. So they come and they ask him to come and heal him. In verse 4, and when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy. He's, they're speaking about Romans. They hate the Romans. They said, he, the centurion, he is worthy to have you to do this for him. For he loves our nation and he's the one who built us our synagogue. So they say, he's worthy. The centurion, he is worthy of you, Jesus, coming to heal the centurion. If, if you know uh, Luke's works well, it sounds very familiar to another centurion that we read about in Acts 10. Cornelius, right? Cornelius, and then with Peter, with his vision, with the, the food. Cornelius had a, was described very similar who was also a centurion. This is how someone described Acts 10. It said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. Very similar to the same centurion. 
He's worthy. He's deserving of this. And why? They say because he loves our nation. He loves our nation. He loves the Jews. He loves our Jewish nation. It could possibly be simply that the soldier who comes to appreciate the culture of the the land that he's stationed and positioned in, that could be. But it seems to go a lot further than that. That the centurion not only is there and loves them, but he invests in them. He literally built a synagogue for them. And a synagogue is not just some building. It is literally the location, the place of worship of the one living true God. So we get the centurion, this almost background of possible faith. He hears of Jesus. He comes by proxy, if you will, and he obeys. And we see that he's marked by love, love for the servant, love for the people. And we see it with him building the synagogue. So marvelous faith is marked by love. Number two, marvelous faith is marked by humility. Marvelous faith is marked by humility, a right view of God and of self. Verse six, and Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, a second group we bring, he sends up, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. Why? For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. So Jesus comes, and the centurion sends a second group out to him and says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. And so we see clearly the humility of the centurion. He ascribes to Jesus a weight and authority as he calls him Lord. And remember, remember what's this context here. It's a centurion in the Roman army who's speaking to a civilian of a conquered and enslaved nation. And yet he calls him Lord. Ascribes this, this authority and this, this, up, this up position. He says, do not trouble yourself. Why? For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. The Jewish elders just got done saying, this man is something else. He loves our nation. He loves our people. You almost owe it to him to do this, Jesus. He doesn't, they don't say that, but it's like, hey, he deserves it. But then the centurion sends the second group and says, Lord, do not even come to my place because I'm unworthy. Very similar, if you remember back with Peter, uh, I think what Keith touched on when he preached a little bit ago. When Jesus came to Peter, and he says, cast up your net, and then they have a, a, an overload of fish. Amen? Everyone's like, yup, yup. Mike's like, amen, amen. Now I'm listening. No, they have a, an overload of fish. And at that point, Peter, it says, but when Simon Peter saw he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Just like Cornel, uh, just like the centurion is saying, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Very similar to John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, which we read, where he says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. The role of a slave. To undo the, the sandals. He said, I'm not worthy of you to untie the shoes. Very similar to Job. When God reveals himself in a whirlwind, he opens his mouth, and the first thing he responds with, the only thing he can respond with, I am so insignificant. Very similar to Isaiah, who is a vision of the Almighty God on his throne. He pronounces judgment on himself and says, Woe is me, I am coming undone. So is your faith 
marked by this humility. This humility of being near to God and seeing his majesty in your unworthiness. And do you know how to spot someone who's close to God? They don't talk about how close they are to God. They don't talk about how intimate they are with God. They don't do that. Rather, they are those who are overwhelmed by their unworthiness. As they get closer and closer to God, the light of God exposes more and more of their darkness in their hearts. And they just feel unworthy and are overwhelmed by his majesty. And so this the satirian, his expression of unworthiness communicates Jesus' absolute worthiness. The satirian knew who he was and who Jesus was. We see before Jesus great people, athletes, CEOs, presidents, kings, centurions, they pale into insignificance in comparison to Christ. And so marvelous faith is marked by love, and it's marked by humility. And number three, marvelous faith is marked by action and obedience, which should not even be close to surprising because that's what Jesus ended his sermon with. You've come, you've heard, now obey. If not, you're going to crash. It's going to be mighty going to be the crash of your house. And so marvelous faith is marked by action and obedience. Faith is acting in line with who God is, his word and his promises. It's acting in line with this. And we've already seen the centurion do this, right? He's heard of Jesus, and he believes that Jesus can heal a servant. And so he's like, you guys head over there, get him to come here and heal him. Because he believes us, and so he acts. And we also see more of his faith in action uh, at the end of verse 7. But say the word. So this is the centurion through his friends he sent to Jesus saying, But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he doesn't. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at them. And turning to the crowd and followed them, saying, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And so the centurion says, I am not worthy to have you come, but just say the word and it will happen. Because just like I'm under, uh, just as I have authority under these people or these people over, you do as well. The centurion affirms Jesus' authority, specifically over his sickness. And this is all over Luke, right? This builds off of what we've seen. Jesus hears hears a man of unclean spirit, chapter 6. Uh, he's healed a man's hand, chapter 6. He heals a paralytic, chapter 5. Cleansed a leper, chapter 5. Healed seven Peter's mother-in-law, chapter 4. Healed many various diseases and cast up demons, chapter 4. Again, it's all over scripture. Jesus healing, the power of Jesus. And so the centurion affirms this about Jesus, and his faith is clearly expressed in his action and obedience by sending the first elders and then sending the second group after him. So marvelous faith is marked by action and obedience. Uh, just like our example last week with Ryan, if I can pick on you again, Ryan. If his faith that the pew he's sitting on is stable and safe will be expressive evidence by him sitting on it. We would be a little curious, a little questioning if Ryan's all day, all morning Sunday school, he's not in class, he's like, this pew is something else. Alex, come here, come here, come here, come here. This pew, just look at it. It's It's beautiful. Like some of us do with cars and stuff. He's like, this is beautiful. Sorry to go on with this, Ryan. Bear with me. All day he's doing this. I'm here working. He comes in the middle of the day. Alex, have you sat on this pew? And then Sunday morning when it comes, he's not sitting on the pew. He's just standing in the back 
we'd be like, what is going on? Obviously, he doesn't believe what he's saying. And so in the same way, marvelous faith is expressed and evidenced by our actions and obedience. And another important point here, from a distance and even in the absence of Jesus, his authority is still accomplished. It's still finished. And this is a very important point for Theophilus, who Luke is writing to, who Jesus is no longer there. And it's important to us. Jesus is no longer here. He's in heaven on his throne. He's not here. But just like here with the centurion, Jesus could fulfill his what he, what he purposed from a distance. He can still do that here. He is still Lord. He is still king. He still sits on his throne, and he is still in control. And it's at this expression of faith that the Son of God marveled. Can you imagine that? Would that not be the greatest thing ever? Jesus comes in, watches you for a little bit, marvels, and says, Hey, come here, come here, come here. Have you seen Keith's faith? Put you on the spot. Have you seen this person's faith? He marveled. It reminds me of uh, when Jesus with the parable of the talents, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. A friend of Casey and mine passed away a few days ago, and he was referred to as Doc because he was a doctor. And uh, over summers at a camp that Casey would go to, she would spend morning after morning with him as they did kind of a specialty breakfast in the middle of the woods. It was called buckboard breakfast because they would bring the kid, the campers in on a buckboard wagon uh, with horses. And so she spent a lot of time with him, and he just passed away. In fact, many of my dress clothes are from him. He gave me a lot of his dress clothes. Some of them don't fit. But no doubt, just recently, he heard those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And here the centurion Jesus marvels at him. We've seen this word already in Luke, marvel. People marveled at Zechariah when he took too long in the temple when the angel appeared to him. People marveled when Zechariah said that his his son's name is John. They marveled at him. People marveled at what the shepherd said occurred with the angel. People marveled with the shepherds. Mary and Joseph marveled when Simeon and Anna spoke about Jesus in that way at the temple when he was just a, a little kid. And the people of Nazareth, they marveled at the, in the, at the synagogue when they first heard Jesus speak. But this is the first time it ever described Jesus marveled. And it said, Gentile, his faith, he marvels. And so Jesus, as he turns to the crowd, right, he literally, verse one, he just got done talking and, and preaching about them will come here and obey. And he like says, hey, look at this guy. He has come, he has heard, and he's obeyed. I have not seen any faith like this, even in Israel. And what kind of a kind of sting, right? Israel, where we ought to see faith. Israel, who has the covenants, who has the law, who has the patriarchs, the prophets, and most significantly, the oracles, the words of God, Israel does. And friends, we have the same today. We have the, the living word of God in our very tips, our very fingers. Jesus says, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And Jesus uses the qualifier such. There's this unique aspect about this faith. 
And just think about this kind of faith that he has not seen people from. He has not seen this faith from his apostles yet. He has not seen this faith from the man who stretched out his hand, his withered hand, and was healed. He did not see this faith from Levi, James, John, Peter, Andrew, when he called them to follow. He did not see this faith when the paralytic stood up into healing, and he has not seen the faith from the leper who begged Jesus to be healed. Yet it is with the centurion, Jesus says, I have not seen such faith. And what made it special? It was marked by love, humility, and obedience. It was marked by trust and dependence, which flows out of this deep ravine of trust. And then it ends, verse 10. And then those who had sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The object of the centurion's faith is worthy of his faith. The object of the centurion's faith is worthy of his faith and your faith. Like the centurion, our unworthiness is no obstruction to the divine and almighty Savior. So the question gets asked again. Will you trust Jesus? Will you trust his person, his character? Will you trust that he is faithful, that he is good, and that he's good and faithful in all he ordains and permits in your life? Will you trust that he actually cares about you and that he has a gracious disposition towards you because of Christ and he's faithful to all his promises? Will you trust his word? what it says about your career, what it says about your your finances, what it says about everything. Will you trust his word? Will you trust his promises and his commands, which is clearly evident based on how we live? Because we can answer that question how we will, but it will be clearly seen on how we live the next few hours, the next days, the next weeks, the next years. Your trust in God's character will be evidenced by peace in the unknown, comfort, growing comfort in the face of hardship, and confidence in unsettled times. Your trust in God's promises will be seen by taking action with the assumption that God will be faithful in his promise, whether for provision, for peace, for whatever. Now, after hearing this, you may be like me right now, just like the man that came to Jesus. Lord, help my unbelief. God, help my unbelief. You may think of your kids, and you may think of, and you desire so much for faith to sprout in them. You may think of some friends or some family members, and you just are wondering, how can I help them? So let me share um, some quick practical suggestions. Number one, talk about this marvelous faith. Number one, spend time with God in his word through reading, through studying, through memorizing through thinking on it, on listening to preaching on God's word. This does two things. Number one, we get to know who God is. We see his faithfulness. We see who he is, that he is a God of all comfort, as, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that he is a God, uh, a faithful God, trustworthy God. All of our songs, that's all you read. God is trustworthy, the faithfulness of God. In Scripture, we see that. Because we all know, the more you get to know someone, and their character is, is looking good and good, the more we trust them, right? You would not dump your kids off at some random person's house compared to dump them off at, uh, who's, who's a good parent here? I was, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to say 
I was going to say myself, but oh, King's not in here, so I couldn't say it. No, I'm just kidding. But the more we get to know someone, the more we trust them. So in the same way, we need to be in God's word. How can we say we want faith when we're not all seeking to know God? And number two, another good, another thing that comes from being in God's word is that's what the Holy Spirit uses to impart faith to us, that grow our faith. Remember back, uh, what was it? It was in, it was in Luke. It was called the, the Power and Priority of God's Word. And I listed, probably at some of your uh, disdain, I listed a large amount of, of promises of what God's Word does. God's Word increases faith. Romans 10, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And it's all over Scripture. So number one, we need to spend time with God's Word. Number two, we need to hear the stories of older Christians and other Christians and how God came through for them. We need to read stories like people like George Miller and hear how God provided the amazing provision for orphanages. We need to hear stories from Hudson Taylor, George Whitfield, Keith Larson, Bob Baker, how God came through for them, how God was faithful for them. And from that we'll hear, we'll have grown confidence that God will do that for me as well. Number three, we need to obey. We need to make those changes that the Spirit is laying on our hearts. Because as we obey and we see God be faithful in one thing and the next and the next, we'll have a growing faith that his faithfulness will continue the next thing and the next thing. If there's a financial situation that comes up and we've already trusted God for so many financial situations, we'll have an increasing faith that, yes, God will be faithful now just like he was the last five times we were in this situation. Number four, we need to key in on God's promises. We need to know what God has actually promised us. How can we have faith when we don't know what God has said that he will do this for us? And on the flip side, we need to make sure that this promise is for us. How devastating and wrong it is to believe that God promised this to us and it doesn't happen when he actually did not promise it and how devastating that would be to our faith. Number five, we need to pray for faith. And that might seem obvious. When I think about little Sawyer and our, our little one to come, like it's just like over oh, like Lord God, please, Lord, may you draw them to you. God, may you do a work in their lives. Number six, I got two more. And this is kind of a similar point, but we need to building off of last week, we need to continually fill our minds and our attention with God. We need to continue to grow in our knowledge of God. Just like we said last week, we saw the world is constantly constantly pressing down on us, like a press pushing us into its mold, constantly. The influence is constantly. We see that the scripture is very clear. Romans 12, 2, what we just saw last week, it's all over that Paul says, Ephesians, Colossians 3, 2, Philippians, talking about set your mind on the things above. Set your mind on this. Renew your mind. We need to constantly be in God's word, renewing and growing, because when we're not, that's when the, the, the enemy of our soul suddenly starts twisting things, like forming us into the image of the world. Jerry Bridges, he says this, if we do not actively seek to come under the influence of God's word, we will come under the influence of sinful society around us. If we do not actively work to be mulling on God's word, to be, be being conformed to the image of Christ, we will be, be conforming to the world. Last one. In growing this marvelous faith, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. 
when you preach the gospel to ourselves daily, when you doubt, when you doubt God that he will come through this time, remind yourself that he's already come through in the biggest way and that he saved you from your sin. You are an enemy of God and now you're a child of God. When you doubt that God cares for you and loves you, remind yourself of the cross where Jesus died for you. And Christian, remind yourself that right now in heaven, right now, Jesus is interceding for you. And when you feel that you haven't done enough to earn God to be faithful in this situation to you, to his promises, remind yourself that God's favor and his gracious disposition towards you is not based on your performance in the least, but it's on Christ's performance, which was absolutely perfect. And so when I think of a, a man of God, a man of faith, I think of that, that guy in northern Wisconsin. A man who has a life that is, can be characterized by rest because he just trusts God what's going on. And in our passage this morning, Jesus marveled at another man's faith, a satirian, his marvelous faith. And so this morning, this past week, this past year, you may have something that you desire greatly. A lasting desire that's been weighing on you. Maybe a desire for something or a desire for something to be taken away, like a hardship. The faith that we see, the faith that the Son of God marvels at, this faith accepts that what God has given you in this present time is sufficient for your present needs. Faith that the God who has given you what you have in the present time is sufficient for the needs you have. Faith does not worry about tomorrow and Oh, do I need to hear this? Faith does not worry about tomorrow. Faith does not worry because it trusts that the same God who provided today will provide tomorrow. Faith trusts that the same God who gave you just enough strength today and you fell down exhausted in the day, and you're lost and you spiritually don't know how to do it, that same God will give you enough strength tomorrow. Faith trusts that the God whose grace was greater than your failures today his grace will be greater than your failures tomorrow. And so may Jesus look down on Soli Bible Chapel, look down on your household, turn to the angels and say, there I have not seen any faith such as this in all of Minnesota. This marvelous faith. Pray with me. Father, Lord, we hear of your faithfulness. We've seen you do incredible things in our own lives. We see a track record of your goodness, even when you are far, when we are far from good, yet we struggle to trust you, God. Lord, we pray you increase our faith. Lord, we pray for our family members who are lost. We pray for our kids. We pray for friends at school. We pray for all these people who do not know you. We pray that you just that you would do an amazing work in their lives, God. Lord, may we entrust our entire lives to you. As, this, as we just sung here, all I am, I surrender. And Lord, may we be able to surrender because we trust that the one we surrender to is nothing but good and faithful and loving. Lord, may our lives be marked by the rest and the peace and the joy that comes from the life of trusting you. Lord, we ask this all in your son's name. Amen.